Hold on, I'm putting in my headphones so I can hear you. Are you Charlotte? I am. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Charlotte. And it's nice to meet all of you, my new podcast listeners. I'm Charlotte Alter, senior correspondent for Time and host of our first original podcast, Person of the Week. Every week, I'll be talking with the people who shape our world in the arts, in business, in tech, in politics, you name it, hoping to understand the forces that shaped them, like what really makes them tick. And this week, our guest is the actor and director Ethan Hawke. You might know Ethan Hawke as the ultimate Gen X teen heartthrob, or from his work in the Before trilogy, or for his reputation as one of the most versatile and ubiquitous actors in Hollywood. But my favorite thing about him is how he's constantly exploding any box he's put in. In addition to being an A-list actor, he's also making theater and directing films and has even written four novels. He recently directed The Last Movie Stars on HBO Max, a six-part documentary about actors Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. And what I loved about this project is that it was created by a guy who's very much a man of our moment, but it was about two actors who are very much a reflection of their own moment in the 1950s and 60s. So he's clearly been thinking a lot about how artists interact with the times in which they live. And while the series is about this iconic power couple, it also reveals a lot about Ethan Hawke himself and how much Hollywood has changed over the past 60 years. And since this show marks the start of a new chapter for me, I wanted to hear from him about how he's reinvented himself so many times. So, are you ready to meet Time's Person of the Week? Thank you so much for doing this. This is one of our first episodes, so we're really, really excited to have you. All right, I'm honored. We like to start off every episode by asking about sort of a highlight of your week and then maybe like a low light of your week. Well, the highlight of my week that leaps to my brain is I saw my daughter. She plays the oboe in the orchestra at school and they did their end of the year performance. And something happened in the jump between the middle school orchestra and the high school orchestra. And this thing was an achievement. I mean, they were playing in a church at St. Anne's in Brooklyn. And I mean, the roof of the church blew off. I mean, these kids, it was Beethoven, man. It was the way it was supposed to be done. I realized I haven't listened to an orchestra in a long time, but It was the timing was great and the horns were magnificent. The oboe was particularly fantastic. And the low light, like everything in life, every peak has a valley. I mean, I'm directing another movie right now. It's about Flannery O'Connor. And editing is so hard. Making something come alive you think, oh, I think this might be a masterpiece, you know? And then you take a break and you look back on it, you're like, this is a disaster. What did I do? And then you go back to work and and it's just an ongoing process that is incredibly humbling. So do you feel like you have a moment like that in all of your projects? Absolutely. And how do you get past that? A lot of times it's not up to you really what the world makes out of what you do. It's up to your effort and your attempt and your growth, you know? And if you are growing, the project is successful. If you feel good, well, you're probably average and mediocre. 
<laughs> and if you're in a lot of pain, <laughs> you might be doing something wonderful, or at least you're growing. <laughs> so you just try to see the negatives and the positives simultaneously and hold them both. You know, one of the things I have personally admired about your career is that you've reinvented yourself so many times. You were a young heartthrob, and then you were writing novels, and then you were making documentaries, <laughs> and you've been in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and you've been in indie films, and you've been—you just made a short Western that debuted at Cannes. How do you approach that cycle of reinvention? How do you know when it's time to try something new? And what if you suck at it? Well, you're going to suck at it. Don't worry about that. You, you, you know, I mean, you got to suck at it. it you, there's no way to be good at anything without sucking. I mean, it, it's like you just you, you just got to put in the practice and you got to have the humility to um, to say I'm not great. You know, there's no way to be great without saying I'm not great. I don't know how to do this. I had no ego about making The Last Movie Stars because I have no pride in being a documentary filmmaker. I don't I don't know how to do it. But I do know film and I do know actors. So you start building on what you do know. The first documentary I made is called Seymour and Introduction, which is about a piano maestro, Seymour Bernstein. And he says this very beautiful thing, which is if you want to know who you are, the easiest definition for it is, you know, what do you love? What do you love? Hmm. And if you really think about what you love and you get close to it, then what you love expands and it starts to expand. And, and you start to know yourself by what you love and it starts to, yourself starts to be a good place to be. And, um, and that's the voice I listen to. So tell me about the moment you asked your mom if you could go to your first audition. Well, necessity is the mother of invention, right? My mom was uh, 18 when I was born. And so my parents were really young. And, you know, that's obviously a very hard thing to go through to have a baby at 18. And so that inevitably was not going to, that's too much pressure on young love, you know? Uh, and so my parents split up and my mother didn't get home from work until some, you know, seven thirty or something. So she was always looking for after school activities for me to keep me busy. And a really good friend of mine was taking an acting class at the Paul Robeson center for performing arts. And I went there and one of the guest teachers was the artistic director at McCarter Theater, which is this beautiful regional theater. And uh, he liked me and asked me if I would be in George Bernard Shaw's St. Joan. And I said, yeah, because my mother wanted me to be busy. So, you know, if that kept me busy on the weekends and after school, then I would go into these rehearsals. And it was an incredible experience. I sat in this basement of this gorgeous theater in Princeton University and listened to these grownups talk about St. Joan and whether they believed in God or not and what the value of this play was and how this character would behave and what does this say and what is martyrdom and what is what is being a saint mean. And these grown-ups were sitting around loving their life, talking about ideas. And, um, and I was like, I just want to do this the rest of my life. I mean, this is not a job. You know, my parents hated their jobs right? They were, they were working for the weekend. You know, the job was something to be gotten through, right? So that you could do something else. And, and I, to see these adults seeming to really love their life was very appealing to me. And then I, I heard about auditions in New York and I asked my mom if I could go. And 
she said, does it, does it cost me anything? You know? And I said, no, she wouldn't do headshots or anything like that. So I had to like take Polaroids of myself and right. You know, Ethan Hawke, five, two, whatever I was, you know? And, um, and I went on a couple of these big auditions with this friend of mine through his agent. I'd just follow him into the city and go on these open casting calls. And one of them I got, which was for this movie called Explorers, and it kind of upended my life for a little bit. Yeah. It sounds like you had a lot of fun making that movie, but then when it came out, it was sort of panned. So can you tell me about what it was like to feel like, oh my God, I have my big break, and then surprise, maybe not so much? Well, it's the greatest wish I could give any young artist is you really find out real, real fast why you're doing it. Because if you're doing it for accolades and for everybody to love you, you really shouldn't do it because everybody ain't going to love you and you're going to get punched in the face over and over again. And so that was a great learning lesson. Like it hurt a lot, but it really prepared me for the success of Dead Poets Society because when Dead Poets Society came out and everybody was telling it was great or it was nominated for Best Picture, I somehow didn't believe it. I kept waiting to get hammered, you know? And so I didn't kind of realize the movie was successful until a couple of years later. It's like, wow, that really actually did go okay, didn't it? Um, and there's a connection between Dead Poets Society going well and Explorers not going well. Like, I learned a lot. I was a better actor because of it. And now you're a director. So when did you make that shift? Well, the truth of the matter is, is I was directing plays when I was 21. I directed my first short film shortly after Dead Poets Society. I took some of my Dead Poets Society money and made a short film. So that switch happened early in my brain and largely because I had no confidence that the life of an actor was sustainable. It seemed awfully arrogant to imagine that I could keep acting for my whole life. And I felt like I needed to learn how to write and direct to make sure I still had a job when I was 50. Right. And your most recent directing project was The Last Movie Stars. How did you land on that project? You know, Paul Newman's kids called me up. I didn't want to make a documentary, but it's not like I've got some, oh, I want to, I think this is important. It, it came to me and you look hard at it and you go, well, wait a second. I love actors. I love this profession. And you know, I'm turning 50 and this is when I got the call, you know, and I was like, what a great thing to do around my 50th birthday is to study two people who did it at a you know high watermark for a long time. And in the space of the two of them, there's a tremendous amount of success and a tremendous amount of failure and a real dialogue about how to balance family and work and, there's a, and the masculine and feminine. Their lives were presenting me all these interesting issues that I wanted to talk about. And so I just kind of follow my nose that way. Mm-hmm. I have a, a confession to make, which is that I actually did not know very much about Joanne Woodward before I watched this. Well, you know, I mean, I put that in the movie. You know, I'm talking to Zoe Kazan and she makes the same confession. Yeah. I mean, a lot of a lot of people don't. Right. And in some ways, it felt like we were all rediscovering these incredible stars that felt almost lost to history. So how did you approach telling their stories to a world that maybe didn't know very much about them? I started thinking about it like a definitive biography of, of their careers. You're talking about 50 years of cinema. And so to 
do a portrait of these two people, I would really have to do a portrait of 50 years of cinema history. And this would be a big book. And so then I started dividing it up into chapters. Well, you know, chapter one is the 50s and actor studio and them falling in love with each other and with the art form of acting. And that sets the arrow for their whole life. And luckily for me, this is possible because unlike a lot of us human beings, their final act was so beautiful. Their lives led a trajectory that is really ripe for storytelling. It was so rewarding to be studying people in their 70s who had really become the people they aspired to be. You know, so many stories, particularly of artistic triumph, live side by side with tremendous pain. You know, a lot of those bios of artists we see you know, they have a direct narrative, and then they went to rehab, and then they died. But Paul and Joanne have this kind of slow daily march towards becoming, you know, and by the end of their life, they really feel like fully actualized versions of themselves. And that was an exciting story to tell because it shows a path of how all of us could do that. And I tried to rip down the iconography and just show them as human beings so that it, it seems possible. Why do you think they were able to sort of achieve that sense of fullness by the end of their lives, of creative and personal fullness? Do you think they were able to do that because they were in partnership with each other? One of the advantages that a very select few group of people have when you have a lifelong love affair is it can be a kind of sandpaper to polish yourself. If you have a partner that you really respect and admire and who really loves you and that you really love, it becomes a lot more difficult to lie to yourself. It becomes a lot more difficult to give in to vanity, bitterness, all those pitfalls that we all fall into. You know, he survived being wildly celebrated, I think, in a way that a lot of people that are given that kind of hyperbolic praise, they turn into megalomaniacs or narcissists or whatever. But he he knew in his heart he wasn't the best actor in his house. And he had a, a nice separation of self and work that allowed him to maintain a humility. And I think that her artistic integrity was so complete that it pushed him to continue to push himself. And likewise, he was a good steward of her talent, constantly challenging her to some of her best work. And she ended up really finding herself as an artist late in life. She didn't find celebrity uh, like her husband had, but she found artistic fulfillment um, hmm. in theater. She was the artistic director of the Westport Playhouse. She was doing fantastic work on television and really allowed to work at the level that she wanted, developing her own projects that had incredible meaning to her. And so she ended up having a much more balanced life. I feel like this gets at these interesting questions about sort of, not to get too huge, but sort of like the immortality of stardom. Which of them do you think at the end of their life was more satisfied with how they had spent their lives? Well... Nobody actually gets any satisfaction by being a household name. It's the kind of thing you think of when you're 18 and 19 is giving you some kind of personal fulfillment. Yeah. These, these things that we think are going to make us happy don't. 
The pursuit of pleasure doesn't make us happy. It's the meeting of our responsibilities that creates pride mm. in us and creates fulfillment. I think Paul was deeply fulfilled by his work. And you, you see the later work, whether we're talking about Color of Money or The Verdict or this Altman movie he did that's bonkers about Buffalo Bill or Slapshot. He was finding artistic fulfillment. I think we're talking about two wonderfully blessed people that both had fulfilled lives. And I, I think... It's a strange thing that we do is we just constantly pit people at competition with each other. Who's the hmm. bigger? Who's more fulfilled? Yeah. They're each on their own journey to be the best Paul and the best Joanne they could be. And they're lucky in that their love for each other was so sustaining. So in another interview that you gave about Paul and Joanne, you said, we're only as good as our generation. And in some ways, this film is about the generation of actors that they were part of and sort of the whole milieu that they were in. But what did you mean by that, by we're only as good as our generation? Well, we're a part of a collective. The artistic community is in dialogue with their audience. What are we thinking about and how are we thinking about it? And what questions are we asking? And what's the depth of feeling and emotion and if audiences are clamoring and paying to hear brilliant music, um, then brilliant music gets made. If people are clamoring to eat cheeseburgers, then cheeseburgers get made. I'm always fascinated, like, why isn't Jack Nicholson and Dustin Hoffman and Gene Hackman doing work like they did in the 70s? You're like, well, those movies aren't getting made. You know, I'm not I'm not sure One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest would get financed today. And would audiences go see it? Would that be nominated for Best Picture? In the 90s, they made a certain kind of movie, you know, when I was first starting. And that generation, Spike Lee, Richard Linklater, Quentin Tarantino, they were in response to the 70s, the movies that we grew up on watching. And now movies that are getting made now are in response to the 90s. Everything's in dialogue with what came before. And you see, as you kind of study it, there's these great movements that happen in a generation in that whatever we do, we do together. And so if you're studying Paul Newman's career, you have to talk about Marlon Brando because that's what they were talking about. You have to talk about Tennessee Williams. You have to talk about Elia Kazan. This shaped the whole way that Paul and Joanne thought about why a human being would want to be an actor. Hmm. So how have you been influenced by other actors of your generation? I think I'm acting like this is my film career. It's not my, my film career is only as good as the film community is. What kind of movies are we making? I mean, you know, uh, we didn't mention, but Explorers had River Phoenix. River Phoenix is a big part of who I am as an actor. You know, he was my first scene partner. I kind of learned, like, what do I do with my hands with River? You know, when I arrived in New York with starting theater company, all those John Leguizamo and Philip Seymour Hoffman. And I mean, I, the, the list is endless. Sam Rockwell. These, these people are a part of um, my acting because I live in relationship to them. I watch Steve Zahn's work and I get inspired, you know. Denzel Washington, you know, had a huge impact on my acting life. You, you know, I learned what it meant to be an adult actor by watching somebody do it. Up next, more with Ethan Hawke about what it really means to be a movie star, then and now, when we come back.
So why is the series called The Last Movie Stars? I mean, do you think this type of movie star and the type of community that Paul and Joanne were in doesn't really exist anymore? Well, I'll answer the question literally first. It's called The Last Movie Stars because in Gore Vidal's interview, he calls them that. And he basically says that they're the last generation that grew up the same way that the first movie stars grew up with the same studio system, with the same teachings. And it was before the internet and before television took off and and really started changing the way we experience movies. You, You know, like for example, you know, when I was a kid, you leave your house and pay money to see Robert Redford in a movie. Ted Danson comes to your house. Alan Alda comes to your house and it's free. So, the movie star was a, a pedigreed status position, right? Right. And, and that's breaking down. People watch George Clooney on their computer. They watch DiCaprio on their computer. And they watch, you know, Beavis and Butthead on their computer. And all those lines are breaking down, right, about what all that mm-hmm. means. And so that's what Gore Vidal was talking about, the last movie stars. Do I think that George Clooney and Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise are Denzel Washington are movie stars? Yes, I definitely do. But- I do think it's really interesting. You know, we start the movie in the 50s when there are a ton of famous acting teachers. Uta Hagen, Stella Adler, Aliyah Kazan, Lee Strasberg. I mean, these these people were famous acting teachers. And that tells you something about the society's relationship to acting as an art form. Hmm. Um, And that there was a relationship to it as craft, the same way that there still is in England. Um, And why we give all the British actors our awards, they're just better trained. You know, they have a better training system and there's a Hmm. humility to the whole process. Whereas we kind of operate in this culture of celebrity where the fires of our ego are flamed incredibly. Like, no, you're wonderful. It's not your acting that's good. It's you are wonderful. Right. Right. And and that's really confusing and, and screws people up and screws up our development. And so they are the last movie stars when being a movie star meant something different than it does, as opposed to a culture of celebrity. It was a position earned. So what do you think is the biggest way you've seen Hollywood change over the course of your career? Well, there's so many small things I could point to, but um I think, I don't know. It's such an accumulation of tiny things. I have worries, you know, and I don't know if I'm right about them. I have anxiety when I see people get big parts in movies because they have 10 million followers, because it's it, it has no relationship to the quality of excellence of what they do, you know, the training of young people's respect for the craft and discipline of it as a lifelong dedication to meaningful substantive art. And uh, there's such a high emphasis put on status and accumulation of wealth. When I was a kid, if you took an advertising job, like if you signed up to sell this, that, or the other thing, you were mocked, Mm -hmm. you know? And now it's a status symbol for people like money's all that matters. You know, as long as people, oh, you made a lot of money doing that. That's a cool thing to do. 
Remember Jim Morrison, they used a song of his for an ad and he almost broke up the doors for it. And it, it, it's just everything is different, but it's different for a, a reason, actually. And it's a very good reason that musicians don't make any money anymore. Yeah. Um, no, they don't get paid for their music anymore. So they damn well should sell it to Budweiser because otherwise all their music's for free yeah. online. And the same thing is happening to movies. Technology has never made it easier to get a film made and never made it harder to get it seen. Huh. Because our attention spans are dissipating. We're seeing more and more movies made for $100 million, which makes us bored with the before sunrises of the world. I know that there's as many ways that it's improving as it is hurting. And it's it's just how do we define progress? I want to go back to the generational thing for a second because Paul and Joanne are of one generation. You are in Gen X. I've written a lot about millennials. I think your daughter, Maya, is maybe at the at the cusp of Gen Z and millennials. How much of the artistic differences between these generations do you think are really material and economic differences? I mean, how much does that play into the freedom to create certain types of work? I just... Um read this biography about Sam Shepard and uh, it was really interesting to read about this sixties arriving in New York and, you know, staying up all night and he's writing a play with Patti Smith. He's hanging out with going to see Charles Mingus play jazz and bringing Nina Simone ice and like this feeling of the city and this vibration of counterculture art, people who are really interested in making art. And, you know, Sam was nominated for an Oscar and he didn't go. You know, they saw all this stuff as fake. And I was reading about it and I was like, I really want for my kids to know these, I want them to know Patti Smith. I want them to know that this is possible. Like, let's get together and put on a play for no good God reason. And not charge any money for it and it's not going to get picked up by a limited series and we're not going to get an agent and we're not we're just going to communicate with people that want to listen you, you know like that's the point of all this stuff is it was just to want to dance and party together and celebrate this brief moment that we're here and to talk and and, and like and there's something that i sense from the younger generation that they are all being told that it's important to make it you know, and the question is, make what? Yeah. Y- 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 you know, like, oh, isn't it great? This movie's, oh, it's getting asses back in seats. And you're like, but but get asses back in seats for what? What are we talking about? Right. You know, hard times create great generations of art. So we're, we're in some very challenging times. And so I have high hopes that these young people, you know what? They learned a lot from that pandemic. You know, they had everything taken away from them. And so that's that has an opportunity to create real gratitude. I mean, I just even, you know, you asked me what the high point of my week was, and I was talking about seeing my kid in the orchestra. I was so grateful we were all back in a church together listening to music and, nobody, you know, we were all there. And I'd forgotten for 20 years to be grateful that we could assemble together. You know, mm-hmm. and so it, it, when I always think that when you're working from a place of gratitude, then your opportunities get a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, your daughter, Maya, is an actor in her own right. She was very involved with The Last Movie Stars also. What advice are you giving her about sort of embarking on on this career in this world that looks very different from when you started? 
Well, the important thing is to never give advice unless it's asked for. I mean, that is that is the most important thing because if it's not asked for, they ain't listening. Um, and there's nothing more irritating than an older person giving <laughs> advice all the time uh, to a world that they probably barely understand. Um, I, I give her advice when asked about her inner self and how she's doing. She's more than capable of handling all the decisions put in front of her about the realities of her life right now and how the world is different. She's better adept to answer those questions than I am. I can give advice about how you're doing inside. Mm-hmm. You, you know, I can give advice and know the sleep I've lost Salty tears cried over people hating you or writing bad reviews over you. People don't know how you're doing. They have no idea. They can write you the greatest review in the world and you could be a disaster inside, you you know? Mm -hmm. And they can write you the worst thing and talk about you all over the internet like you're a knucklehead. And they could have no idea how much you're growing. You know, like you can't give away your own assessment of yourself. And that's the kind of thing. I want her to know what she's worth. You know, she's worth everything. She's priceless. And if she treats herself that way, you know, and I would say that to all the young people I meet, you know, to be the steward of their own talent, uh, ain't nobody else going to look after your development. Yeah. Okay. People are going to tell you how to make money. People will tell you how to be a big shot. They'll tell you how to play a certain angle, but they have no idea how you are developing inside, because they are not in charge of that. You are. You've said that you are in your old man era uh, and at the beginning of the last act of your career. Uh, what is What does that mean? What do you want from this last act? Well, I don't know. And whenever you talk like that, it makes it sound like you really think about your life as a narrative, which I really don't. Um, but I do think that, to be honest, you know, it ain't spring, right? It's probably not summer. It's probably the start of fall, right? You know, I mean, I'm not in the throes of winter yet, um, but it's it's definitely the start of fall. And I see that as this huge positive because the fall is harvest season, you know? And the fall is time to like really think about what you've learned and think about all these amazing people that have impacted my life and the generosity with which people have come at me with and 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 want to give back in that way. And, you know, and in a way, The Last Movie Stars is, is, is a way of how I can contribute to that, of like trying to talk about what I've learned in this profession and see if that can push me to some new place and hopefully have something to offer other people. Great. Ethan, thank you so much for being with us. It's honestly been a joy to talk with you and... Uh, thank you for all the incredible work you do. Hey, it's my absolute pleasure. Thanks for your work. Thanks for caring. Thanks for watching The Last Movie Stars. Thanks so much for joining me on our first ever episode of Person of the Week. If you have thoughts for who should be our next Person of the Week, email me at personoftheweekattime.com. See you next week. Person of the Week is hosted by Charlotte Alter. It's produced by Nina Bisbano and India Witkin. Our senior producer is Ursula Summer. Our story editor is Katie Feather. This episode was mixed by Rebecca Seidel. 
Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Our fact checker is Joseph Frischmith. Person of the Week is a co-production of Time Studios and Sugar 23. At Time, our executive producers are Mike Beck and Ian Orifis. At Sugar 23, our executive producers are Mike Mayer, Michael Sugar, and Liam Billingham. Sasha Mathias is the executive producer of Audio at Time. You can find us online at time.com slash person of the week and wherever you get your podcasts. Listener.